And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to his disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help him. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that 
most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. May God add a blessing to this, the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, let's affirm together our trust in God's word. So let's say it together. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Well, today we resume our, our series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, and if you remember, we, we spent the fall months in this Gospel, and then we took a break for Advent and Christmas, so we're back in chapter 9, but we left it at a very important point in, in the Gospel. Uh, as, as you know, Mark kind of runs quickly, and he gives us a lot of these very vivid uh, events about Jesus. <clears throat> and the first part of Mark, which we covered in the fall, it, it largely is, is about the question, who is this Jesus? And Jesus often forbids people to tell others about him because he doesn't want misinformation getting out. He actually wants to frame his own identity and his own ministry in his own way. And so it's interesting how this messianic secret is, is all through the, nine, the first nine chapters. And then in, at, at the end of chapter, or the first eight chapters, at the end of chapter eight, Peter makes this glorious confession. He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus, right after that, begins to talk about his suffering and his cross. And so the shift in this, in this book, in the Gospel of Mark, happens right there at that confession. When Jesus now begins to define his identity, he begins to define his ministry in terms of the cross. So that the rest of the book, chapters 9 and on, which we'll be looking at this winter and then during Lent and even into Easter, the rest of the book is about the cross, is about this road to the cross where Jesus is carefully defining his ministry in terms of his suffering and death. So that's where we are, just in case if you forgot, but this is where we are. We've shifted from that messianic secret to that revelation of Jesus as a crucified Christ, as a crucified Messiah. And so today, we're looking at the glory of Christ. After this big revelation of his messiahship, he takes three of his closest disciples to a high mountain where he is transfigured. And so we see his glory there. We also see his glory coming down from that mountain and engaging with human need, where we see him help a boy that is possessed by an unclean spirit and healing him and helping the father as well. And then finally, there's a third <clears throat> expression of glory, third revelation of glory. And that is something this passage is pointing to, and it's pointing to another time Jesus was going to go up a mountain and be crucified and reveal his glory through the cross. So we're looking at these three expressions of his glory, the glory on high, the glory down below, and the glory of the cross. And I think we need all three expressions to have the right view 
of who Jesus is and how we are to follow him. So let's look at this glory on high. So what happened on that mountain? Let me quickly point out three things here. And if you're following, you can just follow through this passage of Scripture. Number one, Jesus was transfigured or transformed. He was changed. There was an outward external change that happened. Verse 3 tells us that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, meaning there was an otherworldly kind of light. It was kind of a purity that we can't really see. We can't find it in this world. This, there's a brilliance to that light, and it's usually associated in the Bible with God's glory. Now, what is glory? Glory is simply an expression of who God is. It's, it's His shining forth of His nature. God's glory is, is simply showing Himself to be God. And so we see it here, this brilliance, this otherworldly light that is shining, and Jesus emanates it. It's coming from Him. It's coming from Jesus. That's the first thing. He's transfigured. Secondly, we see Elijah and Moses showing up here in verse 4. Now, why Elijah and Moses? Out of all the people, right? Abraham's not here. Jacob's not here, right? Daniel's not here. Enoch even is not here. Why is it that Elijah and Moses show up at this, this moment of intense glory of Christ? Well, the conventional answer, and I think it's, it's right, but I think there's more to it. The conventional answer is that Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And Jesus comes to, to fulfill the old covenant, to fulfill the law, to fulfill the prophets, and, and bring the new covenant to his people. Now, I, I think that's right, and I think theologically it's, it's, it's accurate. But I wonder... If these two people, Moses and Elijah, are showing up here because they both, they each had an intense experience of God's glory on a mountain. I wonder if there's a connection between these two lives and these two experiences, very intense, direct experiences of God. Now, you remember Moses went into the cloud of God's glory on Mount Sinai. Do you remember that? When, when, when God was given the law, he was given the Ten Commandments to Israel. First, it was the 70 elders and Moses. They, they came close to the mountain. But then when it was time for God to speak and to give this law to his people, it was only Moses that went into that, that cloud of, of God's glory. And then, of course, you remember, this is Exodus 24. And then later in Exodus 33 and 34, we read about Moses asking God to show him his glory. Moses is actually asking for a deeper, more direct experience of God's presence. And God says, I, I can pass by you, but I have to hide you in a cleft of the rock. I have, to, I have to kind of put you away so you don't get hurt by my glory. And you can only see me passing by. And even that was such an intense experience for Moses that his face was shining. He had to use a, a veil because his face got so bright, so God's glory, his brilliance, that, that pure light, that, that otherworldly light shone on Moses and, and his face shone. So that was Moses' experience on a mountain in the cloud of God's glory. And now he's showing up here with Jesus on a mountain in the cloud of God's brilliant light with God's voice coming down on, on that mountain. 
And of course, Elijah had a similar experience. You remember that he was so discouraged after that, the great showdown with, with the idol worshipers and the priests of Baal. And then he got so discouraged, so scared of Jezebel, who was the queen pursuing him, that he went to this place, actually the same place that Moses was at, that same cave, that same cleft in the rock. And he went there and he asked for God's presence. He asked for God to speak to him. And God didn't come in a hurricane. He didn't come in a whirlwind. He didn't come in a storm. He came as a, as a, as a small, still voice talking to him one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, it was a very intimate experience of God's glory, still shielding, still shielding Elijah in the cave so that Elijah doesn't get hurt by his glory. So these are the two men, right, that experience that. They experience that kind of direct conversation, that kind of intense experience of God's presence, God's glory, God's expression on them. Life-changing, right? And they're showing up here now. And who are they talking about? Who are they talking to now? They're talking to Jesus. Both Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus. Now, Peter says, there's three of you, let's make three tabernacles, let's make three tents. Peter's not getting it. There's not three. It's Jesus and the other two. It's the two talking to Jesus. It's the two seekers of glory finally talking to Jesus. As they talk to God on that mountain, and as they experience God's glory, so they are now talking to God and experiencing God's glory. This is a, a clear statement of the divinity, of the deity of Christ. And the third observation, look at verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. This is God the Father pointing to Jesus in the presence of Moses and Elijah and the three apostles. And He's pointing to Jesus and He says, This is my glory. This is the revelation of who I am. This is the expression of God to humanity right here in this person. This is what John means when he says the same John, by the way, who remembers this, who was on that mountain, who saw the glory of God and heard the voice of God. John says in 1.14 in the Gospel of John, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. John says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, God revealed his glory. God expressed himself to us in this person, in this God who became human, who took on flesh and, and mediated that glory to us. This is what the author of Hebrews means when he says in Hebrews 1, in the beginning of chapter 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now listen to this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. 
So what happened on that, on that, on that mountain? What did Jesus want his disciples to see? What does he want us to see? What happened was nothing less than an official presentation of Jesus Christ as the person in whom God's glory is displayed to the world. He emanates the heavenly light. He's the one Moses and Elijah are speaking with. And he is identified as God's beloved son who embodies God's word, his self-revelation. This is what happened. Now, what does it mean to us today? Why do we need to see this expression of glory? Why do we have to have this mountaintop experience and seeing, seeing Jesus in his divinity shining, pure? Why do we need to see that? There's at least two points of application here. One, so that we don't treat Jesus as anything less than God himself. We need to see this glory, this, this glory on high, this glory that, 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 is, that you can't argue with, this light that isn't like any light we have seen. We need to see Jesus like that so that we can see him as God and so that we stop treating him as anything less than God. I mean, if you hear Christians, church people, talk about Jesus, often it seems that they're describing their personal trainer, you know. They're describing their financial advisor. They're describing somebody who is there to help them improve their life. But this is, is not who Jesus is, is it? This glory is Jesus shining with the pure light of God, the divinity embodied in this person. How, how can you treat him as a, as a butler? How can you treat him as somebody who is sort of a, a, a you know, if you forgive me this, but a, a peloton, you know, in, in the corner of your bedroom? Just kind of there when you need him. That you can, you can set at a certain level that you can get what you want from it and then leave it be. This is, this is not who Jesus is. He's God. He is the glory of God that Elijah and Moses longed for. He has come to reveal who God is to the world. So treat him properly. The second point of application is that we cannot know God apart from Jesus. He is the glory. He's the radiance. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He is God. And to know God, we need to know Jesus. For, for true Christianity, um, for, for us to know true Christianity, biblical Christianity, there are no other options. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. There's just one way. And it's a narrow way. And it's a way through the person of Jesus through the cross, through the resurrection, through discipleship to him. There's nothing else. There's no other way to God because Jesus is himself God. Now, we need to have this experience of glory on high. There's a reason why Jesus takes Peter and James and John with him. 
so they can see him transfigured. Now, nothing has actually changed in Jesus. He's, he's the same person. He's God and man. But that visible change, that, that the visible glory, that light shining, was important, important for James and Peter and John to see. They needed that glimpse of heavenly glory as we do. Immediately, Peter wanted to build three tents because he wanted that, that experience of worship to linger. Now, he didn't understand a lot of what was happening, but there was an instinct in his heart. Let's just, let's stay here. Let's linger here. Let's bask in this glory. Let's listen to this voice. I think that's an instinct of every Christian. Perhaps every human being longs to be connected to this, this glory. Part of the reason why we gather to worship corporately on Sundays and other times is so we can experience a little bit of that, right? Don't you, don't you come to church sometimes and, and, and you feel like, I just, I just want to be here. I just want to linger. I, I just want to experience glory. I just want to feel certain things. I want to know God. I want to see this light. And you're saying, I just, let's, just, let's just stay here. But, but it's a fleeting feeling. It goes away, right? We need that, that experience of glory, but, but we know that that experience of glory will need to help us in other times. And it's interesting that every time in Mark, in these, in these chapters that we're in right now, Jesus, when he, Jesus predicts his death, he predicts his suffering, it's always followed, three times it's followed by his teaching on discipleship. What he's saying is, I will suffer, and you will suffer with me. And if you follow me, you too will hurt, and you too will be disappointed, and you too will struggle. So let me take you to the mountain, and let me show you my glory. So you don't forget what this is all for. So you don't forget who you're dealing with. So you don't just get bogged down in your struggle and your dysfunction, but so you can break out of it and see the glory on the mountain. This glory is displayed, but this glory is delayed too, right? It doesn't linger. And Jesus says, don't, don't talk to anybody about this until after the resurrection. Because he's saying true glory will come. The lasting glory will come when he is risen and when we rise with him. And then we get the glory. And then it's here. And then we no longer suffer. That's that glory on, on high. We need to have that experience of glory on high. But we also need glory down below. When Jesus comes down from the mountain, he rejoins the crowds. He finds that the scribes are arguing with his disciples. The scribes are always arguing with everybody, it seems. And they're arguing with the disciples specifically about casting out demons. And here, too, we see a father who loves his son. And the boy has been tormented by an evil spirit since childhood. This unclean spirit has been hurting him, trying to destroy him, throwing him into the fire and the water. 
He's already taken his, his ability to speak from him. And this desperate father has brought the boy to the disciples. But the disciples could not heal him. They couldn't help him. And this is the point when Jesus comes. And Jesus, now remember, Jesus, they're coming from this mountaintop experience, literally, with seeing the glory of God. Now they're coming down that mountain, and what are they faced with? A father who can't help his boy. The disciples, the religious professionals, the scribes who can't help this family. The contrast is, is striking. Mark takes us from this high experience of glory, of brilliant light, to the painful helplessness and despair in the face of evil. And here is the question embedded in this contrast. How can we experience God's glory in the midst of suffering and sin? We understand glory in terms of the mountain, in terms of those, those glimpses during worship, in terms of those mystical experiences in prayer, in terms of a, a, a quick moment at your house when you look around and you say, everything is good. We understand glory in that way. We get that. But what about glory down here? What about glory when your kid is thrown into the fire? When your kid can't speak, when an evil spirit is controlling you. Can we bring that glory here? That's the question. Can that glory from the mountaintop come down? Because Jesus comes down. The same person is coming down that mountain, and now he's engaging with this family. Is God's glory only glimpse on the mountaintop? Or can we glimpse it on the hospital bed, or at marriage counseling, or broken down on the side of the road, or looking over the bills at the kitchen table. Now, the Bible's answer to those questions is an emphatic yes. It's an emphatic yes, because Jesus comes down. The gospel says that Jesus brings the glory of God down into our suffering and sin. It is not that we go up to him, and that's the only way for us to experience his glory. It is that he comes down to us, and he comes into the crowds. He comes into, he literally comes into the argument. He steps into the argument between the scribes and the disciples, and neither of them can help the boy. And that's when Jesus comes, and he enters that conversation. He enters that dysfunction. He talks to the father and says, how long has it been going on? Now notice the compassion in his voice. How long have you been struggling with your boy? And he says, this has been going on as long as he's been around. His whole life has been like this. His whole life, evil has ruled. And he says, can you help me? There's despair here. There's, there's this kind of last resort. Maybe, maybe he can help me. Maybe. And how do we bring that glory into that dysfunction? What happens here? What is the, the connector here? How is it that this father and his boy can experience the glory of Christ who comes down from the mountain? What's the connection? 
The connection is faith. It's faith. Now, when Jesus comes, his, his first response is he says, oh, faithless generation. What Jesus is most frustrated with is our lack of faith. It's not so much our sin, but it's the sin of unbelief. It's our refusal to receive help from him. It's our stubbornness. It's our self-reliance. And so Jesus, Jesus comes to the Father and says, bring, bring the boy to me. And the Father says, well, if you can do anything, please, please do something here. And Jesus says, well, what do you mean if I can do anything? He says, I can do anything. I, I, I can do everything you ask me to do. The question is, do you have faith to, to receive that? That's the question. But what kind of faith? And what is faith? What is the faith that connects our dysfunction to God's glory? What brings his glory from the mountaintop into our sin and into our suffering? And this is where we have one of the, I think, the most beautiful expressions of faith in all of the Bible. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. What, what, what is happening here? What is happening? Jesus says it's your faith that matters. It's your faith that can unlock the power, unlock the glory, that can bring me into your life, that can bring healing into your boy's life. Jesus says it's faith. But what kind of faith? It says, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's your definition, the kind of faith that actually connects glory to our sin and suffering. The father prays. He prays. He prays even when the disciples refuse to pray for a healing. They ask Jesus later, why couldn't we, why couldn't we cast out that demon? And Jesus says, you didn't pray. You didn't ask me. You didn't exercise your faith towards me. You try to do whatever you tried to do, whatever the techniques that you picked up. But you didn't talk to me. You didn't ask me. But the father of this boy does. He goes to Jesus, says, help me. And he says, I, I believe, I believe, but help my unbelief. He brings his helplessness to Jesus. He brings his desperation to Jesus. Friends, that's faith. And I don't know what tradition you come from, and I know there are churches that will tell you that God will act according to the strength of your faith. That if you can conjure up more faith, God will perform a bigger miracle. That if you can just present yourself to God as a person strong in their faith, as a person who never questions, as a person who's never wrestled with doubt, then God will unlock glory. And whatever you ask of him, he will do. But that's not what we see here. We see a person who barely has any faith, who acknowledges his unbelief. He's not hiding his doubt. He's coming to Jesus, and he brings that to Jesus. And Jesus heals the boy. And Jesus helps the father. Faith is simply our refusal to rely on ourselves Faith is, is our turning to Jesus 
for help. Yes, we can talk about a gift of faith. There's lots to talk about in that area of faith. But at the basic level, what is faith? It's, It's turning to him. It's turning away from you and turning to him. And so when you turn to Jesus, you see his glory. And not just at the top, but down below. As you struggle with doubt, in the very... In the very same time, as you are struggling with unbelief, you can exercise faith. We, we all, we're all struggling with faith. Of course we are. We're finite human beings who are suffering and are in sin. Who's going to have perfect faith among us? We're a faithless generation. But what does Jesus want? He wants us to turn to him. Something that even his disciples did not do. They're trying to heal the boy in, his own, in their own power. And Jesus says, this kind <laughs> is not cast out by your own technique. It's cast out by your prayer, by turning to me because I cast them out. Now let me give you an illustration. And I know some of you and some of us are, are struggling with faith. And I think there's different kinds of struggles. I think there's the normal Christian, I believe, help my unbelief struggle. And then there is, I don't believe anymore. Those are different. And the difference is, are you looking to Jesus or are you turning away from him? Are you bringing your doubts to him or are you taking your doubts away from him? Are you looking to him for help Or have you become self-sufficient in your own doubt and unbelief? That's the difference. That's the line. Now, let me give you an illustration. When, if, I have not flown in a while, but my my last memory of flying is that there are all kinds of people on that airplane. There are people who, you know, they travel all the time. This is normal. They, they have everything figured out, and you can tell by their luggage, right? It's a certain kind of luggage that fits exactly where it needs to fit. It's got a charger attached. They're, they're ready, right? They're dressed comfortably, but not in sweats. You know, there's that, that kind of line where I want to be presentable but comfortable. They're not worried. Those people are never worried. You know, they fly all the time. They have absolute faith. Absolute faith they're going to make it to, to their destination. And then there's like all these other stages, right? There's somebody who's, they're mildly worried. They're mostly worried their passport is expired or they, you know, they don't have the right tickets or their luggage isn't going to fit or they're going to be late or they're not going to make their connection. And there's levels of that. There's levels of worry. And then the, at the bottom of that, right, there are people that are just, they're losing it. I mean, you know that given that there's just a couple of triggers here away from, from they're just going to totally lose it. And they're the people that are clutching their seats, right? They already know where the mask is, where the exits are before they tell them, right? They're ready. But everybody is on the plane. All those people are on the plane. The anxious and the confident people and everybody in between, they're all on the same plane. Now, who's going to make it to their destination? They're all going to make it. They're all going to make it. Because all of them have enough faith to get on that plane. They have enough faith to say, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to take that step. This is what the Christian idea of faith is. 
It's not that you haven't figured out all your questions. And please, if and this, is, this is your first time hearing a Christian sermon or being in a Christian church, please, let me just let you in on a little secret. We're, we're all questioning a lot of stuff. We're all doubting a lot of stuff, and we're all struggling. But we have made that step. We've walked in. We've met Jesus. We've seen his glory down below as we turned to him and we prayed and we said, Jesus, I, I think I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me. This is how it works. Let me give you another illustration really quick. And Pastor Josh loves this illustration. It's from, from Don Carson. And the illustration is, imagine when the Israelites, that night before they left Egypt, and God said, a, a, a destroyer is going to come. And, and any household that doesn't have the blood of the lamb on the door, the firstborn is going to die in that household. But... He's talking to his people. He's saying, because I'm telling you that, put the blood of the lamb on your doors. And if you do that, I will pass over and nobody's going to die in your home because the lamb already died. Now, that's the idea. Now, imagine a conversation, right? As, as it's starting to get dark, you know, they ate, they're, they're talking about everything that's been happening in Egypt and, and one, of, one of the, and their neighbors, you know, and one man says, man, I'm so excited. God told us beforehand how kind is God that he told us before, he told us exactly what to do, and I know that I'm going to do this. God's, the angel is going to pass over and we're not going to die. And he's going to take us out and he's going to give us this beautiful land. I'm so excited about what God is doing. And his neighbor says, he's like, sounds really weird blood on the doors I mean we kind of know what life is here and yeah it's terrible but we know what it is but what's going to happen when we leave how are we going to cross any body of water how is it going to provide for us when there's nothing to eat what about the Egyptians they're, they're going to chase after us you know that right he says but I guess I'll, I'll put the blood on the door I'll put the blood on the doorsteps just as God told us and he does it. Now, which one of them survives the night? Which one of them is delivered from Egypt? Both, right? Both. Very different confidence levels, right? One is anxious, ready to lose it. The other one is completely in control of his emotions. He's, he knows God is going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. But both are acceptable to God. Because both are looking to God for deliverance. Because neither of them says, you know what, I'm just going to protect my own family. Come what may, I'm going to take care of my own boys. None, neither of them says that. And so they're both saved. Both make it out. That's faith. I wanna, I'm, using, I'm giving you two illustrations of the same thing because I want to encourage you that the kind of faith that brings God's glory into your life down below is not void of doubt. And it's not void of struggle. And ultimately, it is not the strength of your faith that determines what God is going to do for you. It's you looking to Him. Because this kind is not cast out by, by anything but prayer. By looking to Him. And saying, Jesus, if, if you can, would you please help me? I believe. Help my unbelief. And finally, 
the third expression of glory, which is to come in Mark. And Mark is going to spend a lot of time on that coming up. But it's hinted at here. It's pointed uh, at here. Look at verse 12, for example. When the disciples see Elijah talking to Jesus, right away they're thinking, yeah, the scribes told us that Elijah has to come first before the Messiah. There's a prophecy. And they're asking that. And Jesus said, but Elijah's already come. And he's talking about John the Baptist. And Elijah, like prophet, has already come. And then Jesus, strangely, I think, but if you agree with my logic of interpretation here, I think makes perfect sense. Jesus turns the conversation to him. Verse 12, he says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He says, yes, Elijah is going to come, and he already came. But the main thing is not Elijah. The main thing is what I came to do. The main thing is that I came to suffer. So if you want to understand this whole restoration, this whole God coming into human history and changing things, you have to think about me, and you have to think about me suffering. The main event is the death and resurrection of Christ. And then also notice that after the healing of the boy, after the glory comes down low, Jesus again teaches the disciples about his death and his resurrection in verse 31. We'll look at it next week, but it's important to see the connection here. Verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. For the glory from on high to reach us here below, Jesus had to go up another mountain, a small hill outside of the city, where he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross so that we can see his glory. And Jesus tells us that this is is the expression of God's glory. That the cross itself, the body of the God-man on the cross, is the expression of God's glory that's going to draw people to him. In John 12, 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, and he's talking about the crucifixion being put up on the cross and lifted up from the earth between heaven and earth, says, will draw all people to myself. What is this glory that actually brings us into God's life? What is it that allows us not to be terrified as Peter was and not to worry about as Moses and Elijah were when they came to to, to see God? What is it that connects that glory that brings it down below that allows it to, to move and work in my life today? It is the cross. It is the glory of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus, the Son of the Father, became helpless in the face of evil and death. And he was thrown, not into the fire and not into the water. He was thrown into God's own wrath. There's there's no worse fate out there. There's nothing harder, more painful than that. And yet Jesus was thrown into that for you and for me. Jesus could help the father who brought his boy to him and heal him because his own father brought his boy 
to the cross. The boy in our story only looked like a corpse, but the Son of God really became a corpse and was buried in the ground. The father who on the mountain told the world to listen to his beloved son did not hear his own son's plea from the cross when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because of the cross and the resurrection that we can have God's glory. It is because of what Jesus did, the suffering and the death of the Messiah, that we are welcome into God's kingdom, into God's family, and eventually we will share in all his glory forever.